now this is recording. RTI International Center for Forensic Science presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. In the sixth episode of the 2018 R&D season, Just Science speaks with Dr. Michael Edge of UC Davis about his research with record linkage of CODIS profiles with SNP genotypes. Can you tell if a set of CODIS markers and a set of SNP genotypes match the same person? Just Science discusses with Doc the possibilities of linkage between CODIS and SNP databases for identity and familial matching and dispel preconceptions associated with them. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan. And welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host with RTI's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. We're here today at the American Academy of Forensic Science. We're interviewing a number of folks who are involved in the research symposium that NIJ puts on at AFS each year. On today's podcast, we're going to be interviewing Dr. Michael Edge, who goes by Doc. You go by Doc? That's right. You can call me Doc. Is there history behind that? Uh, so my first name is Michael. My middle name is Donald. My initials are MD. Always wow. called me Doc since I was a little kid. Okay. Nothing to do with the PhD. So Doc has his PhD from Stanford University. And you actually worked with uh, Noah Rosenberg there, right? That's right, yeah. He was my advisor. And he was a very, very famous population geneticist. Apparently. Yeah, pretty famous. He's on the Wikipedia page, yeah. And you've now moved over. You're, having, you're doing a doc is doing a postdoc at UC Davis. That's right, yeah. And everyone says that the next postdoc to arrive in the lab is going to be the postdoc postdoc. That's too much. Okay. <laughs> I agree. And I understand this is your first visit to AFS? That's correct. Okay, well, welcome to the forensic science community. Thank you. Your work really is primarily in population genetics. Define what you what population genetics is and kind of your subspecialty within it. Sure. So I would say that in general, population genetics is a field that goes back about 100 years, and it's concerned with largely trying to write down mathematical models for how frequencies of different genes change in populations during evolution. So in particular, you're thinking about how do things like mutation and migration and natural selection change allele frequencies. And it's a field that's really blown up like everything in genetics in the last 10 or 15 years because of the wide availability of large data sets. Historically, it's this really mathematical theoretical field, and now there's lots and lots of data analysis going on, uh, including, to some degree, interest in analyzing population genetic properties of markers that are used in forensics, like the CODIS STRs. Sure, uh, which of course has changed enormously. So first of all, we've expanded the STRs that forensic scientists use, so right. that's creating an issue. But also, you know, the populations that we might be looking at have been changing as well. And we're also now looking at things like SNP markers. Right, exactly. So tell me about your work in particular. What are you looking at? What is your main interest? I've worked on a few things in population genetics, but my work that's relevant for forensics has been studying population genetic properties of the CODIS markers in particular. So I've done a couple of things in this space, and I'd say the general idea has been to ask questions about, okay, what's being assumed about these markers? What are practitioners bringing to the table as preconceptions? And can we take a really close look using the most modern population genetic techniques and see whether those preconceptions really hold up? 
Uh, well, give me a, an example of a preconception in this regard. Sure. So one that you see scattered around the forensic genetics literature here and there is the idea that the CODIS markers are not informative about ancestry. Sure. Uh, or minimally informative about ancestry. And, and that claim is based on the fact that the CODIS markers tend to have low values of FST, mm -hmm. which is just a statistic for measuring the degree of difference between different populations sure. and little frequencies. In other words, the, in general, for the CODIS markers, the frequency of a particular type isn't going to be that much different between one population and another. That is true, but there's, there's a bit of a complication there, and the complication is that perhaps the most really characteristic thing about the CODIS markers is that they're really diverse, so they're really high heterozygosity markers. Mm -hmm. You pick any two people, they're very unlikely to have the same genotypes. And FST is actually not designed for that kind of marker. It's, mm -hmm. not, it's designed for what they call biallelic sites, so sites where there's only two different types available in the population. You know, people okay. either have A or T, right. or, you know, T or G. Or then obviously a 50-50 chance, roughly, depending on how things go, right? But I might be A or T, and you might be A or T then. Well, yeah, you generally have much lower heterozygosities at those sure. codes markers than at the CODIS. Since it's a repeat-based marker, you can have any number of repeats in principle. Not in practice, that. but in principle, yes, <laughs> yeah. right. So FST actually does sort of funny things when you have these really diverse markers with lots and lots of different alleles at mm -hmm. them. And if you actually use modern population genetic software to try to infer ancestry, it turns out there's, there's more information than you might guess from just FST alone. So that's an example of one. For people who are listening, we just recorded our talk with Ken Kidd, and we talked about the principles around this. And one of the things that certainly is the case is that when STRs were first chosen, the idea that they were just not phenotypic and they weren't going to tell you disease states and things like that was canon. Mm -hmm. And in fact, we know now that, that that's nonsense, right? I mean, that there's all sorts of information in those STRs in, in terms of their influence on the regulation of genetic markers. Right. You know. And what you're saying is, is very much reflective of that, isn't it? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly. I'd say that's a different framing you could take to all the stuff I've done in forensics is there's a lot more information in these markers. Sure. I think. So yeah, one form of that is there's, there's actually more ancestry information than has previously been appreciated. And uh, the project I'm going to be talking about at the R&D symposium is about how there's actually a lot more information about other stuff in the genome that's not necessarily in really close linkage with the CODIS markers. So what do you mean by that? So does that mean that the CODIS markers are associated with other kinds of phenotypic information? Or is that the idea of linkage between different kinds of haplotypes and things like that? So uh, yeah, that's a great question. There is work on, hey, are these CODIS markers directly related to other sorts of phenotypes? So there's a famous paper from Katsanis and Wagner on that. I'm sure someone's going to redo it in the biobank now that uh -huh. uh, there's these huge SNP data sets that are just been released from the UK biobank. Okay. So, so it'll be possible to go do this much more thoroughly now because there's way more genotype associations with phenotypes that are known. So you could redo that, but that's actually not exactly what we're doing. What we do in this project that I'll be talking about is we say, okay, let's imagine we have a set of CODIS genotypes and we also have a set of SNP genotypes and we don't know whether they're from the same person. Is there any way we could tell? Sure. Um, that's what we do, and, and we find that there's actually a fair amount of information for being able to do that. Uh, and that is because of linkage between different haplotypes. Okay, okay. That is the basis for making that call. Of course, there's thousands and thousands of SNPs. Exactly. So 
like for example, are you talking about particular the 55 SNP panel that is out there that some of the companies are putting out? Which SNPs are you talking about? Yeah, good question. So I'm, we actually use the SNPs that are within one megabase of the CODIS markers. So, oh, okay. so within you know a fairly narrow genetic region. What we're thinking about when we're doing this is not necessarily a, like a forensic 55 SNP panel or something like this. We're thinking about a panel that may be 23andMe or a okay. medical study where people are doing SNP genotyping and they'll have you know several hundred thousands or a million SNPs taken from across the genome and they'll genotype those. So let's say somebody has this huge data set. Could they tell whether these forensic markers are from the same person that they have genotype or not? And so to do that, you actually can throw away a lot of that information because most of the SNPs are distant from the CODIS markers and won't tell you anything. Right. So all you need are the ones that are right nearby the mm -hmm. CODIS markers in the genome. Right. Was that an expected result? I mean, I'm surprised, frankly, from that result. Yeah, I think population geneticists think all the time about linkage disequilibrium in the genome, and in particular about genotype imputation. So this is something that comes up in statistical genetic data sets all the time, where you'll have a SNP panel, several hundred thousand SNPs, and you have more markers that you want to know about, and then there'll mm -hmm. be other SNP markers, and you'll try to impute them statistically. And that just comes from knowing what a particular haplotype usually looks like in the population. Sure and filling in the missing information. So people knew that imputation worked really well for SNPs, and not much was known about whether it worked for humans. There was a suspicion that it would work to some degree, I think. And we knew it worked really well. Incidentally, I think the only study on this before we did it in humans was in dairy cattle. Uh, and in dairy cattle, it works super well. And they have exactly the same sort of situation in, the, in dairy farming. So something you see happening in the forensics communities, we have these CODIS markers and we have this huge database and all this data built up. Mm -hmm. And that's a rich resource, but it's only at 13 markers and now 20. Right. And I think we want to do a lot more. A lot of people want to do a lot more with forensic data sets than you can actually do with 13 markers. You can things like mixture resolution and relative matching a hard problem when you've got relatively few markers. So if you could switch to SNPs, it's really useful. I'm an advocate for switching to SNPs, or at least as Dr. Kidd and I talked about the idea of having a multiplexed assay, so you would actually do both. But yeah, 20 STRs from an ancestry perspective, what is the implication? Because it's not strong enough to really give you good ancestry data, but it is strong enough to say, well, you know, these aren't as blind to ancestry as we would like. Is that right? Or is it, do you think you could actually go to the next level and just say, yes, I can give you some solid ancestry data from STRs? Two different questions here. So I've sort of mixed the waters here. I think from 13 markers, we get well beyond chance resolution at like a four continent sort of level scale. We have this worldwide population genetic data set, which is it's slightly different population representation than you would have in a US data set, for example. But we have one cluster that's sort of like Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa in particular, another one that's more or less uh, Europe through Central South Asia, Middle East into South Asia, another one that's East Asia, and another one that's the Americas, and you can get pretty good resolution into those, particularly in the clusters that sort of correspond to the Americas into Sub-Saharan Africa. With 20 markers, I think you'll do quite a bit better than we did in our paper, but I, I think it depends on the use you want to put it to, obviously. It's not going to give you the kind of ancestry information you'd get from like a 23andMe.com ancestry right. report or something like that. Nothing like that sort of resolution. But maybe at a very coarse level, it can tell you roughly where somebody's ancestors are from. Okay. 
So tell me, are there other preconceptions that we need to be thinking about here? The two I've, I've spent time thinking about, I think, one is, is how, much, how much ancestry information is there and how much linkage information with other markers is there. Sure. So in the R&D session, you're presenting the linkage data, which is kind of interesting. So basically, you're going to have the CODIS markers, and it's, they're going to be associated, there's going to be some linkage with SNPs within a certain range of the genome, mm -hmm. right? So what's next? I mean, what do you think you're, you're going to be looking at next? The next project that is ongoing in this space is... Everything we've done so far is about sort of identity matching. So can I tell this is literally the same person carrying these set of CODIS markers that I have and a set of SNP markers? Um, we're extending now to think about, can we work with relative relationships, so, so family relationships? Can we tell parent-offspring uh, or sibling relationships? And we have some success doing that as well. Uh, Jae Kim is the postdoc who's leading that project. Sure. Well, I mean, there's a great interest in familial matching. I mean, there's interest from a very wide variety. Maybe human trafficking, for example, as well as in forensic science. There's a lot of interest in being able to do that well. Right. And the, the biggest issue with it is the fact that STRs are just a really hard way to, to do that kind of problem. Is, I mean, is that a soluble problem using STRs? If you have a lot of STRs, I think, sure. But the question, I think, becomes, at some point, is it worth genotyping all these STRs, which are at this point more expensive to genotype than the SNPs, uh -huh. as opposed to just getting a SNP panel. I think you could do that sort of work a lot better with a SNP panel. I think at the same time, I would say SNP panels tell you a lot more about a person than the, than the STRs do. And so I'm not a lawyer or anything, but I think possibly requires a different kind of thinking about the procedure under which you're going to collect these markers. If you're going to collect and store these markers that, that really tell you quite a lot about a person, sure, it's a different set of considerations when you are allowed to do that right. than if this is going to be you know, roughly as informative as a fingerprint about a person's other traits. Well, yeah. I mean, I think one of the themes here is that you know, population geneticists are saying a couple of things right now to us. I mean, one of them is that there's a heck of a lot more information in STRs, but definitely in SNPs than we ever had before. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's a revolution. Mm -hmm. It really is. The other is, is that if, if you want to be the most cost-effective and, and the strongest thing to do is to be looking more closely at SNPs from a forensic science perspective. Yeah, I think cost-effectiveness, if you're defining that in terms of how much information do you get for how much money, yeah. Um, it's I not think close, SNPs it? are a winner at this point. <laughs> even though I would say each SNP is less informative about identity than a single STR is, but uh, you can just get so many more for the same amount of money. That I guess the last thing I'll talk about is back in the 90s, post-OJ basically, there was a fair amount of criticism of the population genetics behind DNA. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of the approach, the basic fundamental approach, was changed at that time. Right. And so that's where we're, we're really sitting in that era now, after the two NAS reports that really yeah. changed that enormously. Mm -hmm. And I worry about whether we need to look at that again. I mean, whether the, the fact is that we've learned so much more, not only about SNPs and other kinds of markers, but SDRs themselves. And are we taking a, the best approach we can to population genetics based on what the current science is saying? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So if I'm understanding the work you're referring to, this is people like Dick Lowenton in the 90s saying that, hey, you guys aren't accounting for population structure correctly. Well, yeah. And these match probabilities you're computing are going to be wrong by possibly orders of magnitude if, if we don't fix things. And I think that's all that stuff was totally correct and has been basically pretty well addressed at that level. But that's really, really specifically for the question of how do you compute a match probability 
you know, is this the same person given these 13 markers? And a lot of people have, including people who are going to be talking at the, at the R&D session, uh, like Bruce Weir, have done a lot of work to, to fix those problems. I think you're right that we're in a new era in that we're going to be asking a lot more of these genetic technologies. And for every new question that we're going to ask genetics to solve, I do think we're going to have to go back to the population genetics and think about is this really right when we think about humans as really being related on this large genealogy, which creates all kinds of statistical dependencies and interesting effects. We have to think about everything we ask being correct in that light. Absolutely. Well, that's an interesting perspective, and I'm, I'm glad we were able to have a discussion with you. We've been with Doc Edge from UC Davis, and uh, we're also going to be linking to your talk at the seminar from okay, the podcast great. and vice versa, as well as uh, I hope to uh, some, of, some of the uh, other work that you'll be doing in, in UC Davis going forward. Great. Um, thank you for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thanks very much. This episode concludes the 2018 NIJ R&D season. Stay tuned next week as Just Science celebrates National Forensic Week with the Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. There will be multiple Just So You Know episodes highlighting FTCOE team members and the resources each of them bring to the center. Please visit ForensicCOE.org to find out about other National Forensic Science Week activities. Opinions or points of views expressed in this podcast represent a consensus of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official position or policies of its funding. Um.